Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Dr. James Doty is a clinical professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University and a director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, of which the Dalai Lama was the founding benefactor. As the director of Seacare, Dr. Doty has spearheaded many research projects on compassion and altruism and their relationship to the brain. He is also an inventor and philanthropist, sitting on the board of a number of charities, including Friends of New Orleans and the Dalai Lama Foundation, of which he is a chairman. In his memoir, Into the Magic Shop, Dr. Doty uses his personal experience in cutting-edge science to reveal how we can change our lives by changing our brains and our hearts. It's a pleasure to have you here. Dr. James Doty, welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you in uh, Dubai there, uh, at least electronically. Uh, so uh, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, I want to dive right in. Where did the journey start for you to learn about compassion and self-love? Well, um, what I tell people is who we are today often is a manifestation of our past. And uh, that journey started in my past uh, when I was a child. And it started in really, frankly, uh, not great circumstances. Uh, my father was an alcoholic and my mother had had a stroke when I was a child and was um, partially paralyzed. Um, she had a seizure disorder. She was chronically depressed. Uh, and actually attempted suicide multiple times. We were on public assistance my entire life, and uh, uh, we were evicted from different places. Uh, and so the interesting thing about that is that you oftentimes don't understand why people are not kind and you're extraordinarily grateful about people who are kind. And um, the other thing that I found interesting was that um, oftentimes people who had difficult circumstances were often the most kind, and some of the least kind people were affluent people who looked down upon you. And I found it an interesting paradox because, of course, those with more uh, nominally can help uh, others uh, versus oftentimes people who have hardly anything are very limited in their ability, but they're often the most generous people. But as a result of my own circumstance, um, uh, I had a lot of anger, despair, a feeling of hopelessness, uh, a feeling that I had no future. And as a child, oftentimes you, um, feel that somehow you're responsible for the situation, whether it's with your parents or where you live or whatever. And of course that's illogical, but that doesn't change the fact that as a child, you think this way. And uh, children who grow up with these types of backgrounds often have uh, high ACE scores. And what I mean by that is there's something called adverse childhood experiences and um, Children who are in these types of environments where there's poverty, there's drug and alcohol abuse, there's violence, there's mental illness, uh, the likelihood of them being, quote unquote, a success by society standards oftentimes is quite low. And it's also 
a reality that many of those children grow up uh, to become alcoholics or drug abusers themselves or have mental illness. And what changed for me was um, that at the age of 12, with these feelings of shame, hopelessness, despair, I walked into a magic shop. And um, the interesting thing about that was that the woman who was there, uh, when I walked in, and she was probably in her uh, mid-50s, long gray hair with glasses at the tip of her nose, held by a chain, and uh, she was reading a thick paperback book. She sort of looked up, and she greeted me with this really this incredibly warm, radiant smile. And as it turned out, she was the owner's mother, and she absolutely knew nothing about magic. But she knew about the human condition, if you will. And one of the things that allows us to be connected, to be calm, is when we're introduced to an environment of psychological safety. And what I mean by that is that when you grow up in a circumstance like I did with these uh, problems, uh, you're in somewhat of a war zone because it's complete chaos. You never know what's going to happen next. Uh, You don't know whether your father's going to come home or whether he's going to stay out all night or if he's going to come home and be drunk or if you're going to walk in and your mother's passed out from an overdose of, of medication. So this always stimulates your uh, sympathetic nervous system because you're always hypervigilant. And um, the sympathetic nervous system, of course, is what controls the flight, fight, or freeze response. And this constant state of trauma as you grow older uh, then turns into a form of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, because you're never sure about anything. And that in and of itself creates stress, anxiety, and oftentimes depression. So in regard to the magic shop, though, uh, this lady was so kind to me, so nice. uh, She asked me a, a number of questions and questions that you could say were a little bit invasive on my privacy. But in her case, I answered truthfully. And um, after about 20 or 30 minutes, she said to me, you know, I really like you. I'm here for another six weeks. And if you show up, I'll teach you something that could change your life. And so uh, I did show up. And it wasn't because I had great insight or self-awareness. It was because I had absolutely nothing else to do. And she gave me cookies. (laughs) And I did show up. Um, and, uh, she taught me, uh, a number of lessons and, uh, so really from there, this exploration of self-love kindness, uh, developed, uh, but I certainly was aware prior to that of the power of love, the power of compassion, but I also was aware of, uh, <clears throat> situations that lack compassion or that could be very hurtful. I remember in I remember reading your book, and when you met this lady, uh, she was going to show you the greatest magic trick of all time. And I think that's exactly that's exactly what she did. Um, you spoke quite extensively about opening our hearts. Could you talk us through one what that actually means, um, why it's difficult, and 
how we can take a step today to maybe start opening up our hearts a little bit. Sure. So interestingly enough, uh, if you look at the science, uh, you know, children until they're probably four or five years old are naturally um, kind and uh, selfless. Uh, what happens as you get older, of course, is you start having more experience in the real world and you start um, responding oftentimes um, not necessarily uncompassionate, but more concerned about your own situation or um, uh, your personal circumstance. The other thing that happens is that for a lot of children, uh, and it can be for a whole variety of reasons, it could be from your parents, it could be from the external environment like bullying, uh, things like this, uh, a lot of people start having a negative dialogue in their head. And uh, it's a dialogue that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't do this. I can't do that. People are going to find out I'm an imposter. And what happens is that when you have this negative dialogue, it starts having a significant effect. It has a significant negative effect on your physiology. Uh, it, has a, it has a negative effect on cardiac function, uh, blood pressure, uh, your immune system. Uh, it promotes the production of inflammatory proteins that are associated with a lot of uh, chronic disease states. Uh, you have the chronic elevation of stress hormones like cortisol. And, and so the long-term effect of this uh, actually uh, decreases your life expectancy even. Uh, so this type of constant negative dialogue, uh, for many people, uh, they start to really believe that that uh, is an expression of who they are. And the reason this happens is from an evolutionary perspective, negative things stick to us because it puts our survival at risk. And even negative comments, unfortunately, as a byproduct of that reality, stick to you. And then you start believing these negative comments are actually you when, of course, they're just uh, a commentary in your head. And most people don't understand that. And in fact, even adults today, a large percentage of them have this negative dialogue in their head. The problem with that is that when you have a negative dialogue about yourself and you have a um, um, sense that you're not worthy and you're very hypercritical, it actually affects the way you see the rest of the world. You are judgmental. Uh, you're um, often not open. You're suspicious. Uh, you don't trust people. And uh, then that results in people responding to you how you respond to them. And uh, that actually impairs a lot of um, one's ability for personal growth and actually to truly connect with people. So what Ruth taught me, which was the woman's name in the magic shop, uh, she taught me several techniques for me to understand that and to overcome that. The first thing she taught me was um, this concept of relaxing the body which now is known as a uh, mindfulness or a component of a mindfulness practice. 
And this was simply sitting uh, calmly, feet on the ground, uh, sitting straight up, breathing slowly in and out, concentrating, in this case, on a candle. Uh, and what happens is that breathing exercise actually shifts you from uh, your engagement of the sympathetic nervous system to engagement of the parasympathetic nervous system, which is commonly called the rest and digest system. But this is the system that engages um, when there's no threat. Uh, and as a result, your blood pressure goes down, your cardiac functions improve, your immune system is boosted, uh, there's a decrease in the production of inflammatory proteins, uh, your cortisol levels go down. And this is sort of your natural state where you should be most of the time. Um, and you're much more open, you're much more thoughtful. And instead of being in survival mode where your options are limited, you have access to your executive control areas of your brain, which give you access to memories, experiences, and allows you to be much more thoughtful and discerning about decisions you make. As a result of that, uh, if you put in the context of a business environment, you're much more creative, you're much more productive, and in fact, you're healthier. And so uh, this type of breathing exercise uh, allowed me to get into that state. And then the next thing she taught me was this concept of taming the mind. And at that time, at the age of 12, of course, I had no insight or self-awareness about what she meant by that. But ultimately, it was this idea of this negative self-talk. And she explained how detrimental it can be to one. And um, she taught me that I could actually change that negative self-talk to one of self-affirmation, uh, to make statements that I am worthy, that I deserve love. And uh, for many people, uh, even as adults, that's very hard for them to truly feel that way. As an example, oftentimes, you know, if you receive a compliment, a person will say, no, 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 right? Even though they deserve it very much, they have a hard time accepting uh, that they're good or they've done something positive. So over a period of weeks, she then taught me to... Um, change that negative self-talk. And the problem with negative self-talk also is that it limits our agency. And what I mean by that is when you tell yourself you can't do something, by definition, you cannot do it. Uh, and for many people, they give up their agency as a result of this negative self-talk or a commentary from other people. As an example, and I'm sure you may have experienced it, um, you, let's say, tell a relative or a parent, a good friend, you know, I want to be this or that. And they'll say, uh, you'll never be able to do that. And it's horrible because if you believe that and listen to it, that becomes another aspect of the negative self-talk. And the reason people do that oftentimes is because they cannot do it and they don't want someone around them to be able to do it. They want everyone to sit in the same position. And it's a, a very sad thing because people don't appreciate that negative words or statements are very sticky to people. You know, I gave a lecture one time uh, to a group of nurses and there was a nurse in the audience uh, who wanted to ask a question. And uh, uh, so, what she said was, and she started crying, 
she said, you know, I'm 50 some years old and, uh, you know, I have a, an RN, I have a PhD, I'm, you know, the head of this unit at this major hospital. And she's, you know, saying this through tears. Uh, she's saying, but, you know, the driver was for me to do all this stuff was because my father told me I would be nothing. Well, what a horrible thing to carry that burden every day to be the driver of you to prove something to someone. And this is the power that words can have, especially on children, <clears throat> versus comments like, you know, uh, I love you so much. I think you could do anything you wanted to do. You just put your mind to it. And whatever you want to do, I'm supportive and I'll be there for you. Imagine uh, that type of a narrative versus the other in terms of uh, motivating you or making you feel okay about yourself. And so um, being able to switch over to engage your parasympathetic nervous system is very important because uh, it in some ways liberates you. Uh, so once she taught me this idea of self-love or being worthy, or now it's termed self-compassion, and there's an immense amount of research on that by um, uh, Kristen Neff and uh, Chris Germer uh, about the power of that. And the thing is, once you're able to be kind and to love yourself, then you start seeing the world a different way because you're more kindful, kind, you're less judgmental, you're more open, you're not afraid. And that's very powerful. And once you make that shift, what I tell people is um, you will find that the world changes the way it interacts with you. Uh, and so from that idea of changing the narrative to one uh, of looking uh, out at the world and seeing it in a different way, which is this opening your heart part, understanding that everyone deserves love, everyone is struggling, everyone has issues, and oftentimes how someone reacts to you has no relationship to you whatsoever. You know, uh, oftentimes people who are in pain cause pain. Uh, you know, you can think of the example of the bully uh, uh, who uh, is so hurting inside from something he's experienced. And this can even carry to adulthood. So being more thoughtful, more gentle to others uh, actually oftentimes changes the entire dynamic. And what I tell people is that after this period of time with this woman in this magic shop, my personal situation did not change one bit, but how I looked at the world dramatically changed. And I no longer had uh, anger or hostility or sense of despair. Uh, part of it was because she also made me understand that events in and of themselves are simply events. It is us who attach emotion to those events. And when we uh, have anger, pain, et cetera, and we attach it to an emotion or excuse me, to an event that gets put into our memory. And every time we think of it, we bring up that emotion. And I think that's one of the challenges for many people as well in relationships uh, and in a variety of situations. 
So when I understood uh, these things, as an example, the anger and hostility I had towards my parents dissipated. And the reason it dissipated was I realized that they did not have the tools or the skills to deal with their own pain. And then as a result, they were looking uh, for other things to help them deal with their pain. And um, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who don't have the tools or have not been taught uh, how to do that. So this idea of uh, being kind to yourself, uh, understanding that you are worthy. Uh, uh, and the thing is, you know, people create a narrative of, well, you know, how, 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 why should anybody love me? As an example, all of us carry a shadow self. And uh, uh, it's the part of us that we're ashamed of. It's the part of us that we remember has done things that have hurt people, that have hurt ourselves. We don't want anybody to find out about. And a lot of people carry that as well. And, and that knowledge makes them feel not worthy as well. And what I tell people is that when you try to push that shadow self into a box so it never shows up, it never works. Because when you're tired, when you're weak, when you're struggling, that's when it pops out. And uh, oftentimes this will result in a variety of negative behaviors that then you'll be ashamed of as well. And what I say is that you have to, um, in some ways, become friends with your shadow, recognizing that it's not going to go away, but that if you don't try to push it away and just accept it as it is and work on yourself to be better, that the likelihood of it causing you uh, the same degree of problems is much, much less. And um, uh, so... I think that's really another thing to understand that each of us is a frail, fragile human being, everyone. And we all have a shadow. We all have made mistakes. Uh, and in the face of that, you deserve to be loved. And when you understand that at a deep level, that also gives you the ability to understand the pain of others and to offer them love and kindness. That was a beautiful, beautiful answer. I, I'm curious to know if, if someone's hearing this right now and they're generally unkind to themselves um, and they attach specific events or specific emotions to events, what would be a step that they can take today in order to become just a little bit kinder to themselves. You mentioned, you mentioned sitting probably in silence, um, focusing on your breath, whether it's for a minute, whether it's for five minutes and, and looking at a specific point, whether that's a candle or whether that's a painting or a statue or whatever it may be. Is that something you would recommend or is there something else maybe that you have in mind? Well, that's certainly a technique. Uh, you know, one of the problems is that people get lost in this idea of uh, one, either I can't change or I'm me and that's just the way it is, or these techniques that people talk about, they're not going to work for me. And uh, this whole idea of meditation, a lot of people create such anxiety about doing it or thinking they're doing it wrong 
that that creates in and of itself more anxiety and more negative self-talk. And, uh, you know, there's a, a funny um, video uh, about meditation, but basically it's a guy who's calling his girlfriend after a meditation experience. And he said, you know, babe, I showed those guys, I did a 45 minute meditation in 10 <laughs> minutes. Uh, <laughs> you know, this isn't a competition. And the thing is that simply sitting down, breathing and slowly breathing in through your nose and exhaling through your mouth and just sitting calmly and not thinking of anything else or trying to fight that. Uh, what happens is that in silence, oftentimes, uh, you know, these negative thoughts are, will come up and the key is uh, not to attach yourself to them as they come up, because that's what so many of us do. As soon as a negative thing comes up, we grab and we go, yeah, that's true. I shouldn't have done that. Or I'm an idiot or I failed versus just watching the flow of these comments go by. And then understanding that you can start interjecting statements that, well, that's not true. I deserve to be loved. I'm worthy. Uh, these statements are not me. I have agency to change uh, these statements to one of self-affirmation because every time you make a ne negative statement about yourself, it's as if you're uh, uh, building a prison with brick by brick. And as the walls get higher, it gets darker and it gets more enclosed. And then you feel powerless. And when you understand that you truly have it within yourself to liberate yourself by simply being kind to yourself and understanding that you are worthy of love. What happens to so many people is they get into this mindset because they look at other people and they go, well, God, that person's doing this and they're happy and that person's doing that and they're happy. Why do I feel so bad about myself? But the reality is all of those people oftentimes are having the same experiences you're having. And the thing is, just like you, they're afraid to show it. And as a result, they put this facade on that everything is great. And this is another uh, sad part of modern society is that, you know, a few hundred years ago, uh, people were born and died in the same village and they uh, lived in a multi-generational household and uh, the P their neighbors didn't change and they were with them their whole lives, essentially. But the thing about that situation is from the time you're small to you die, you have a connection to everyone around you who knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and they still love you and accept you. And that, you know, you talk about these blue zones in the world where people live to over 100. Well, part of it certainly is diet. But another part of it is this connection to others who accept you. And, you know, there's a study that's now been going on at Harvard for almost 80 years, tracking a group of graduates, um, males in this case. But the primary component of long-term survival is connection. And this is really the thing that each of us needs. We are social animals. And um, in the modern world, oftentimes your family, your parents, your siblings are not nearby. Uh, you don't necessarily have close friends. 
You're working in an office with people you don't necessarily know. Uh, and as a result, you do not feel comfortable uh, demonstrating that, in fact, you are this frail, fragile human being. I mean, how many people go to work and somebody says, hey, how are you? And you go, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Well, mm -hmm. no, you're not necessarily fine. <laughs> <laughs> but people are afraid to say, you know, God, thanks for asking. You know, uh, my child is, uh, you know, has cancer and I'm really struggling with this. And, you know, I don't know how I'm going to deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, uh, unfortunately, in, in modern society, some people would recoil at that because they're, uh, you know, oh, my God, well, uh, what am I going to do about this? But the other side of the coin is there are actually a lot of people who want to help you, who really want to be kind. I give a lot of lectures. And during those lectures, uh, I tell a variety of stories, and some of them are very moving for me. And I will shed a tear. Or my voice will crack. And what happens invariably, whether it's, you know, 50 people, 200 people, 1,000 people, as soon as that happens, everyone starts crying. Right? <laughs> because you've given them permission. They don't have to be afraid of it. They can express who they truly are without feeling that somebody's going to ostracize them or be mean to me or to them. And the thing is that when I do that, after, typically after the lecture, all these people want to come up and hug me, right? <laughs> that is normal. Yeah. That is the way it should be. We should be able to feel free to do that. You know, when we talk about compassion, when we talk about love uh, in modern society, oftentimes people think, well, you know, they're a pushover, they're weak, uh, you know, they, they're not going to be able to be successful. Well, the fact of the matter is when you're able to be vulnerable, to show your emotion uh, and sit there with it and not be afraid, actually, that's one of the most powerful statements you can make. Uh, and I have no problem, you know, uh, uh, demonstrating that. I, I have no fear about being judged. Uh, you know, I am a frail, fragile human being who's just doing the best they can. And that's the way it is with most people. And the other reality is that people forget is that everyone, uh, and it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, what position you're in, every one of us every day has the ability to improve the life of someone. And it can simply be with a smile. It can be with helping somebody walk across the street. It could be uh, paying for somebody's groceries who's in need. And almost all of this stuff effectively doesn't really cost you a whole lot. But the reality is when you do those acts of kindness, what we know is that it actually makes you feel better. What happens when you're kind, when you're compassionate, this stimulates the reward centers in your brain and results in the release of oxytocin and other uh, neurotransmitters that activate our reward and pleasure centers. And in fact, that's the motivation for a mother to care for her child because the human species, unlike other species, when they're born, they don't swim away or run off into the forest. You have to take care of them for 12, 15 years. Well, why would you do that? It's a huge cost in time and resources. You do it because when you care, you're rewarded. And that is the um, uh, evolutionary strategy that our species has developed 
uh, to uh, perpetuate our species. And whether it, it was in the nuclear family or evolved into hunter-gathered tribes, and you have to remember that until six to 8,000 years ago, humans lived in groups of 50 to 150 or so in this harsh environment. If an individual in the group or the tribe was suffering, it put the entire group at risk. So again, you're motivated to care for those people and to ensure that they're okay. And again, you're rewarded for that. I was going to ask you how to how to cultivate meaningful relationships, especially if if we're in this modern society where we may be living away from our families, we might not have any close friends, and and we do have situations where someone in the office asks us how are you doing, and we're saying no, 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 we're fine, but we're not. I think you know one of the things that you've already mentioned is acts of kindness to strangers or to people that you do know. Um, but is there anything else that you could that you could think of in terms of really cultivating these these deep and meaningful relationships, knowing that you know we don't live in one of the blue zones and we don't live in a society that we may have lived in 20, 30 years ago, even? No, I think what you said is absolutely correct. Uh, um, reaching out to people, being kind, listening to people, uh, being thoughtful. You know, oftentimes in modern society, you know, people just put their head down and they don't want to be engaged uh, because, uh, again, uh, they feel they're going to be judged. But the reality is, and in some ways this it requires you to uh, be fearless, is to um, just do it. And I will assure you that in almost all instances, you will be appreciated, you'll be accepted, and um, uh, that is how you make connection. Uh, and you have to understand that sometimes it requires you to make the first step because the other person, you know, is afraid. You know, again, in modern society, people hold up these shields that say, I'm this, I'm that, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, deep down, uh, you know, they're afraid as well. And so by understanding that, being kind, being thoughtful, and also appreciating that how a person reacts to you doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you. And as an example, I um, was working with a colleague uh, who was in his 30s, and uh, he had, we were working on a project, but he had decided to quit his position and uh, take another position. And he was married with a, a few children. And um, in the United States, at least, when you leave your job, you don't have insurance. And you have to buy something called COBRA or this gap insurance. And what happened in this instance was that because his family was young and healthy, when he left his job, he didn't buy the COBRA insurance because he thought he would be able to save some money. And so he and I would meet every week or so. And one time we came to meet and uh, he was extraordinarily aggressive in our conversation, which was very unusual for him. And, and it was as if he wanted to pick a fight. And uh, now what would your first reaction? The first reaction for most people is to be aggressive back, right? This is engagement of your sympathetic nervous system, or you, you know, you can run away. But 
instead of going into that mode, I looked at him and I said, you know, this isn't like you at all. What's wrong? And what happened is he burst into tears. And it turned out that his um, wife had found a lump in her breast. She got it biopsied and it was cancer. And he has no health insurance. He has a young family and he's terrified. Now, fortunately, what happened is uh, we were able to get him retroactive insurance. The cancer was taken out. She didn't need any more therapy and everything was fine. But the point of the story is to show you that how he was interacting with me had nothing to do with me whatsoever. And this is often the case uh, with people. There's oftentimes something going on there uh, and they may not even appreciate that it's uh, driving their behaviors. And this is another concept I think that's important. And while it's been attributed, attributed to Viktor Frankl, uh, I can't find uh, the quote anywhere, but it's often attributed to him. And this is this concept of um, um, between stimulus and response is a pause. And within that pause lies your freedom. And what he means by that is instead of having that knee-jerk reaction to respond in a situation like I just described, which was to be confrontive or just as aggressive, <clears throat> to pause and think about what could be the drivers of this person's behavior and uh, how can I help them? And if you look at it that way, if you take the time to pause, that stops you from this reactive mode where you engage your sympathetic nervous system to engage your parasympathetic nervous system, which is much more thoughtful and discerning and frankly kind. So I think that's another important thing to learn. Now it takes, you know, some time, but as another example to show you though, how quickly um, you can change your view and this is what people also don't understand. It is within our power to change how we react and how we see the world. Uh, as an example, let's say, and I'm sure this has happened to you, you've been driving along and somebody cuts you off, <laughs> right? Now, typically in the US, two responses will happen. Well, maybe three. One, you'll slam on your brakes or you know, uh, steer away from it. But the other is you'll often use a, a two-word uh, uh, expletive <laughs> or you'll use a hand gesture, right? And uh, because you think that person's insensitive, they don't care, they're selfish, they're, um, they don't care about causing an accident, et cetera, et cetera. But if I change the narrative to tell you that um, the driver of the car, uh, he's taking his wife, who's in the front passenger seat, to the hospital because she's nine months pregnant. She's broken her water and she's bleeding. <sighs> Suddenly, you sit there and go, oh, my God, I'll get out of the way. I can understand, you know, why this person did this. And it completely changes. But you see... It's within your power to sit there and decide how it is you're going to react.
Another example, uh, let's say it's pouring down rain outside. You have two businessmen. They're both in their suits. They have to be an appointment, at an appointment in the other building. So they have to walk along a long stretch of open uh, uh, space to get to the other building. One walks out and he looks up and he sees the rain and he goes, God, you know, we've been in a drought. Uh, you know, thank God the rain is here. It nourishes everything. You know, this is wonderful. He walks out into the rain. He says, you know, God, the, the drops on my face, uh, uh, they're so warm. And it reminds me of when I was a kid and would just run carefree in the rain, et cetera, et cetera. You walk, another person walks out, uh, dressed the same way. He sits there and he goes, this damn rain, you know, it's going to delay me to my meeting. My suit's going to get wet. It's probably going to ruin my shoes. Uh, my day is ruined. I'm sure the meeting's going to go bad, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you see these two different perspectives, yet each experience the same thing. And this is the point of uh, choice and uh, how you're going to respond. And it is a choice that you make. And again, it gets back to this idea of you have the agency to decide uh, whether the day is going to be good or bad, because the choice isn't related to the events. The choice is related to you. Yeah, it's all about how you perceive whatever's happening around you or what's happening to you. And what I wanted to get to as well is you, you spoke briefly about the power of giving and the power of giving back. Now, I know that in your life, that's already been um, at play significantly. When and how did that start? And, and to add to that, what sort of benefits, selfishly or unselfishly, have you seen from the act of giving? Well, uh, to answer your first question, I'll give you a little bit of the narrative. Uh, so, um, obviously, I um, was over to, oh, able to overcome my hardship uh, in my family situation because of, uh, in great part, due to the interaction I had with Ruth. So, I was able to go to college, uh, believe that I could go to medical school, become a neurosurgeon, become a professor at Stanford. Uh, become a successful entrepreneur. And during that journey, of course, uh, seemingly, uh, I had everything. Uh, I had a position of uh, influence or power. I had lots of money. Uh, but the interesting thing was all my friends would tell me how great my life was. Yet every day I would go home as unhappy as I had ever been. And ultimately, after being extraordinarily successful during the dot-com crisis, I lost uh, about $80 million in six weeks. And I had had a penthouse in San Francisco. I had Porsches, Ferraris. You know, I was flying on private jets. I was dating beautiful women, et cetera. And I was miserable. And here suddenly I lose everything. And in fact, I end up being about $3 million in debt. And, uh, of course, that gets your attention. Uh, and it put me through a period of reflection. And um, during that period of reflection, I realized that I had not been selfless, 
not necessarily that I was selfish, but all of the things I was doing was trying to fulfill this void that I had because of shame and insecurity. And so each step I took, each hill I climbed to the top of, it, it, I never felt satisfied. And I felt, well, now I have to do another thing and another thing. And each time I was never satisfied or happy because I believed that happiness was the acquisition of things and that when I got all of these things, people would look up to me and think how great I was and I would now somehow be happy. And sadly, in modern society, it works that way for a number of people. You know, poor people often look to wealthy or successful people as being happy. And if I can just have this, I'll be happy. And the problem is that happiness is not an external happiness is an internal and it gets back to this your choice uh, happiness is a choice that you make and uh, during this period of reflection after i lost everything you know two people become really close friends one is your banker and one is your lawyer and uh, what happened is i um was bankrupt effectively. And I was meeting with my, and I owed the bank 20 or so million dollars. Uh, I um, was meeting with my attorney and I had made um, some documents which would donate a lot of stock in a company that had yet to go public to charity. And when I was meeting with them, it turned out that they had actually never filed the documents. And I actually had no obligation to fulfill that uh, um, gift I was going to give. And uh, so the attorney said, look, you can keep this stock and this will probably get you out of all your financial difficulties. Um, so I thought about this and I asked a lot of my friends and I will tell you 100% of my friends told me um, I should take the money or the stock back. But again, during this period of reflection, I, I was trying to analyze who I am, what do I stand for? And uh, um, how do I see myself? And then I realized, of course, that my actions were actions out of shame and insecurity. Uh, and this attachment to these goals and reaching the goal and thinking it would make me happy uh, was a false narrative. And so I chose to give all that stock away to charity, which ended up being $30 million ultimately, and while I was $3 million in the hole. But what it did was it realigned me with sort of my purpose, which was to be of service and actually to promote or pay forward the lessons that Ruth had taught me. And with that money, I was able to set up health clinics all over the world, set up programs for AIDS, HIV, uh, uh, programs, support programs, uh, uh, set up programs to... Uh, provide uh, equestrian therapy for the disabled and a whole variety of other programs, as well as endow chairs at different universities and support a variety of research initiatives. So what I tell people is, you know, on the one hand, I went from ranks to riches, but when I got the riches, I was still empty. When I lost everything and then gave it all away, then uh, I was richer than I had ever been, and the emptiness uh, was fulfilled. Transitioning into 
what you're doing today, which I think is a perfect segue, is you're the director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Could you talk a bit about CARE, how it started and, and, and what your mission is with it today? So we, you asked me about how I came to compassion. So at a certain point in my career, I um, started thinking about this question uh, much, much more. And uh, I had actually been at Stanford, went off to do entrepreneurial things, then decided actually to um, work in a hospital in an, in, in an impoverished part of the country uh, to uh, help develop a neuroscience program and uh, uh, in Southern Mississippi. And so um, I did that actually out of a sense of compassion and altruism. But while I was there, I started thinking more and more about this issue. And I decided, well, I'm going to go back to Stanford and I'm going to study this. And so I was able to get my old position back at Stanford. And uh, uh, the chairman was kind enough to accept me back. And then uh, I uh, got together with a group of neuroscientists and psychologist and explained that I wanted to study this. And what's interesting is I was told that uh, the study of compassion uh, was an academic dead end. And fortunately, I had the resources to pay for the research, which then motivated the scientists to do the research. And we also formed sort of a journal club to meet every month and talk about papers and things. And what amazingly happened is we found that, uh, in fact, being kind and compassionate actually had a lot of positive physiologic effects. And in fact, two of the scientists changed their um, direction of study to focus more on compassion because of how powerful we found it to be. So what the center does is it does research studies uh, and you typically with uh, our own scientists as well as collaborators around the world. Uh, and this can be basic science research or clinical research, if you will. Uh, we also developed interventions. Uh, we have a compassion cultivation training program. We have applied compassion training. Uh, and we've uh, done studies that uh, demonstrate the power of these types of training to uh, improve self-compassion and compassion for others, and also to improve uh, one's physiology. Uh, we also do something called Conversations on Compassion, which is um, a program where I sit on stage with someone who I find interesting in this space, if you will. It can be a spiritual or religious leader. It could be a business person. It could be an actor. Uh, uh, it could be a whole variety of uh, different individuals. But we talk for an hour to an hour and a half about what are the drivers in their life that made them uh, sort of be motivated by or moved uh, in the direction of compassion. And so uh, those are what we mostly do. For, or interestingly, when I started this, there were actually there was no center that specifically focused on compassion in the world. And that's not to say there weren't people studying this, uh, but there was no center that actually focused on this. And uh, since that time, uh, now, and it's been about 13 years, there are centers all over the world uh, doing this type of work. Uh, the number of articles uh, in this space has grown exponentially. Um, we have individuals who we've trained 
uh, and our training from all over the world. And uh, so I think that um, clearly there is a yearning and a need in individuals to promote this agenda. And one of the other pieces that we were talking about earlier is, is, the, is the involvement of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. What has it been like working with him or working alongside him? Well, uh, I've been fortunate to work with a variety of, of leading spiritual and religious leaders, including the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, Amma the Hugging Saint, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Sadhguru, uh, and the Pope. And what I'll tell you, uh, specifically about the Dalai Lama, but about these evolved spiritual leaders in general, is that earlier we were talking about how people carry these projection of themselves, how they want people to see them. What people don't appreciate is that projection comes at a high psychological cost. Uh, and when you're in the presence of someone like the Dalai Lama, you suddenly realize that you were accepted as you are, the frail, fragile human being, and you don't need this projection anymore. And suddenly you feel free, you feel elevated, and you feel incredibly happy. Uh, and, and because people, this feeling that people are judging you or you not being accepted really is a heavy thing to carry. And so in the presence of these types of individuals, it's an incredible liberating uh, experience and you just feel fantastic. And, uh, you know, I remember I was on uh, stage with Alma, the hugging saint one time, and she was having me sit next to her holding my hand actually. And uh, uh, someone was saying, you know, I was watching you had this huge smile on your face and it was like, you were just joy, joyous. <laughs> And I could just see this radiance coming out of you. And I think that's the gift that these types of individuals bring to the world. And this is why so many people want to have proximity or connect with these individuals. Dr. James, I have one final question for you. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Because you've received a lot of advice, I'm sure, good and bad. <laughs> well, uh, the best advice is uh, be kind. Two words. And, and if you can do that and wake up every day with that as your agenda, uh, you will help yourself and you will help a lot of other people. That's beautiful. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your books, and, and Seacare? So there are a couple of websites. One is Seacare, that's C-C-A-R-E dot Stanford dot E-D-U. And we have a fairly in-depth website there. You can uh, track me down at jamesrdotymd.com or uh, for the book, intothemagicshop.com, which um, uh, actually is a New York Times bestseller. It's been translated into 40 languages, so it's pretty much available probably through 90 per, to 90% of the world. And the interesting thing about that is I'm sure you've heard of the K-pop group, BTS. Um, they actually used the book as the basis for their third album called Love Yourself uh, Tear. And uh, there's a song in that album called Magic Shop, actually. Wow. That's very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing all that information. And, and to sure. all the listeners out there, get the book for starters. I, I read it in about four days and immediately reached out to Dr. James. And he's been kind enough to, to spare some of his time 
and uh, and share his secrets and share his knowledge with us. So, Dr. James, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, you're welcome. Also, I'd just like to mention, probably in about two to three weeks, I'll be starting a podcast uh, called Into the Magic Shop, and it'll uh, I'm changing the website of the present Into the Magic Shop.com website. But uh, for any of your listeners, uh, that'll be starting in a few weeks, and uh, I hope uh, to see you there. We'll be sure to share all the details once the show comes out. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. You take care.